Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for downloading and listening to this episode of The Next Track. This is episode number 15. So I remember the days when I used to come home with my record store purchases or CD purchases and spend a lot of time poring over the jacket and sleeve of an album trying to glean as much information as possible about the recording. And invariably there would be a credit for the guy who mastered the record. Now, I I didn't know exactly what mastering was, but I figured it was important because somebody was getting credit for it on virtually every record and CD I bought. Well, today we're going to find out about mastering. We're going to find out about mastering from one of the elite mastering engineers in the world, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. From his Jacobs Well Mastering Studio in Hanover, New Hampshire, we are delighted to welcome Samuk Nam. Sonny, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Sonny, it's nice to meet you. I've been looking over your discography and all the work that you've done, and wow, it's pretty impressive. The number of names that I see on that list, Paul McCartney, The Doors, Barry Manilow, Frank Zappa, how many albums have you mastered altogether? Do you do you count? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I could say that. Once. Okay. You also have two Grammy nominations. I, I believe one is for mastering and one is for engineering. Is that correct? No, it's all all for mastering. Uh, un- unfortunately, uh, mastering engineer doesn't get the uh, credit for other albums, but um, surround mastering or uh, best engineering field on Grammy also. Um, uh, I think it's an uh, album of the year. Is th- those are the three cre- uh, categories that we got credit from Grammy. So I've worked on a lot of albums that got the the Grammy awards, but I'm not credited as a award uh, awarder awardee. I think. And then, but um, I got the uh, two uh, nomination on the category that uh, nom- that nominates the mastering engineers. That must be great to get that kind of recognition because you're the sort of unsung hero that works in the background that most people never hear about, yet mastering is really important to a record. But a lot of us don't know exactly what does it mean. What is mastering? Yeah, so mastering means the process that takes when the the content, uh, on our case, is the song or the album, is transferred from one storage media to another media so that's what we call mastering. So in the 50s, it meant from tape, which uh, producer and engineer were using to store the music, to vinyl records, which are consumer, uh, product, consumer storage media. So uh, to do that, you have to do a few stuff that uh, ensures that all the quality that were stored in the uh, tape to be transferred to vinyl. And uh, those two meters has a different characteristic. So mastering engineers should know the difference between the storage media and also should understand the, uh, the environment that the consumer would listen to that media. You mentioned that you need to know the, exactly what the consumer is getting. And I guess th- the only example that I know of that is the difference between LPs and CDs that LPs have the RIAA curve, which is a sort of an equalization so that the bass isn't too heavy and it knocks the the, the needle off the record, um, whereas CDs don't have that, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So if you master something for an LP and you put it on a CD, it's not going to sound right. You, you have to consider a couple different factors. First of all, the vinyl is a very physical media. Uh, the needle is, has, has to move really fast and a lot to produce the sound or to record the sound into the groove. 
right? So uh, the big problem area of the vinyl is actually on the higher frequency rather low frequency because low frequency moves slow, maybe longer, but it's very slow. So there's not much of a problem on the physical side of it. Yet on the higher frequency side, you have to move really fast, like 20,000 times per second if you want to reproduce the 20 kilohertz. And that produces a lot of heat as well and a lot of inefficiencies. So uh, vinyl has to cope with that limit when they record or reproduce the sound. Yet tape machine doesn't have that problem. There, there's no physical vibration in a tape machine. Not at all. So as mastering engineer, we have to solve the problem if there are a lot of uh, high frequency energy on the tape machine. Then we have to figure out how to store those you know, higher frequency energy into the vinyl without getting distorted. So those are the, the knowledge or understandings of the media. Also, there are a couple other things like um, it's a basically MS, the mid and side process on the vinyl. So the, all of the mono portion of the recording is stored on the depth of the groove. It goes down. And the side information, which is not mono, gets to uh, sideways. Okay, So if there's a, the elements on the mix that are not in the mono, yet very prominent on the one side, then we have to do something to make it fit to the record. Other than that, it will take a lot of space on the vinyl. That means you have to shorten the, the program to fit that movement. Right. When the stereo first came out, they didn't know how to use the stereo instead of mono. So they experiment it in a very different ways. You, you mean like the Beatles albums where you have the vocals on one side and the guitars on the other? Yeah, exactly. And the problem of that is people doesn't know how to put those two speakers in the right space. Like if you go to the, someone's like uh, audio video room, then they put the, the, the center speaker somewhere in, not in the center or not putting a center speaker at all, or a subwoofer is like totally off, something like that. It happens exactly the same thing in the early 60s and even in the 70s. Or if you go to like kitchen, even these days, one speaker is on the kitchen and the other speaker is in the dining room. That, you know, that could happen. The problem of those, the placement of the instruments totally to the left side, it's not going to be heard on the right speaker if you put that speaker in the other room. Right? So... The producers and engineers are figured out that the problem of that placement of the instrument, so they start to put the important elements of the mix into the middle so that everybody can hear it. So that's the idea that we you know, developed over the like, 20 years of the, the first stereo came out. But the early days of you know, stereo, they put the, like, all these different instruments, like important instruments on the left side or right side. As a mastering engineer, that's a big problem. Let's say the producers decide to put the bass and kick on the left side. Then it's a huge space that has to take on the vinyl. So you're saying that one groove has all this loud stuff and the other groove has maybe the voices and the guitars, the rhythm guitars. And so it's unbalanced. One side. So in order to take that, the groove moves really like big curve. If you have a lot of stuff in the middle, it goes deep, rather sideways. Ah, okay, hold on. So I think I see what you're saying. If I were to look at a needle on a record with a microscope, yep. I would see it moving back and forth according to the volume and the, and the intensity of the music. Is that it? Right. But that's the, the side information, which is not mono. Right. But if you see the 
if you, if the groove goes deeper, that means there are a lot of stuff in the yeah you know, in the center, and it's getting loud. Okay, so um, as a mastering engineer, we have to do something to you know to fit that into the the vinyl, the limited real estate of the vinyl. And as always, they want to put their their music as loud as possible, even fifties, sixties, and seventies. Okay, so we have to fight those limitations. We have to fit to the music as close to the producer engineer would want it to be heard, yet we have to put it loud, as loud as other commercial albums. So those are the, the limits and also like challenges that we have to see. So you're like the last guy in the chain. Do you ever get into, do you ever have to sit down with a producer and explain to them their innovative and unique uh, instrument placement isn't going to work and uh, you know, say you have to do it your way? If it's the vinyl, yes. If it's the CD, there are not much of you know, argument. Uh, yeah, there, there are, the CD doesn't have the same kind of limitations. Right. Let's go back. How did you become a mastering engineer? How does one learn this? By working in a studio and just learning how the studio works? Because it, it seems that what you're talking about is the next level after an engineer in a studio. And, and you particularly explained how you need to know the medium and you need to know almost the physics of a vinyl record when we're talking about vinyl. So how did you get to where you are today? Um, yeah, it's one of the the scary questions that I had when I started the start my job as a mastering engineer is where did you learn that skill? Because I taught myself. Hey, there's plenty of self-taught musicians who are great. <laughs> yeah, and also my mentor started the mastering engineer as a self-taught engineer as well. Uh, my my mentor is a Doug Sachs, a very a legendary, yep. famous you yep. know mastering engineer, and he actually started the independent mastering industry. Before he started his own, his own firm called Mastering Lab, it's all the part of the big recording complex or the part of the recording label, and all the mastering rooms sits on the very small corner of the studio, and there are no any like real listening environment at all. So mastering engineer is just the the cutter, and producer or engineer just cut that reference and brought to his room and listened to it. If there's something wrong, then he had to come back to the mastering. And then, or the remix the stuff. So it's just like it just just like the you know the technical side of it. Yet Doug developed all the artistry and everything, but he also self-taught. And uh, for me, I rec I started as a uh, recording producer, classical music recording producer. I studied classical music and the, the theory of classical music. Then I uh, started to record the the classical music. It was, I started. I was starting as an audiophile. So I was so fascinated about the all this cl audiophile classical music recording. So um, I started as as a recording uh, engineer and producer. And for classical music side, there are no budget set for mastering. So I had to learn myself how to master the the recording or mixing uh, that I did. Oh, you, you're you're saying that there was no money budgeted, so. Someone had to do the mastering, and it was you. Right, right, exactly. So I had to, I had to learn how to do it. Then um, I realized that the, my characteristic or my personality is uh, much more well-suited to mastering rather recording because I like music, new music every day. I don't want to you know, listen to the same music like 100 times or 200 times. Yet as a producer, I have to listen to the same recording like 100 times or 300 times. And then if you go to the release party, you are going to listen to one more time. So I, I hated it. And, and you're going to have to smile even right. if you don't like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but the mastering is great for me because you hear the music one day and done, and then you're going to have a next client, fresh ear, new music, 
and it was different like personality and everything. So I really enjoyed the mastering. So I I more I was focusing more onto the mastering rather recording music. So that's how I started it. Can you describe the process when I assume you get digital files these days? You make it sound like it just takes a day to master an album. How does it work? You get these files, you load them into something, you listen to them. What what do you do now to master an album? Yeah, so on these days, I have to consider characteristics of listening environment, also storage media that is to be consumed. First of all, uh, people are not listening to the music in a quiet environment at all these days. People are listening to music when they're jogging, when they're driving, or when they're walking the street. So I have to cope with that fact, because if there are like very quiet stuff for the intro or outro, that which are not going to be heard on the louder environment if I, if I won't do anything about it. So I have to bring up those quiet stuff up to a certain level, but not hurting the actual balance of the whole song. That's a, like, a very delicate decision that I had to make. Also, like other stuff that, that are recorded or mixed as a lower level, I have to bring those up so that people can hear it in a louder environment as well. So those are the changes that I had to make without hurting the feelings of producers or engineers or artists. And the musicians, maybe, maybe the musician um, whose, whose instrument was high in the mix in the tapes you got, all of a sudden you've lowered it and the musician's going to feel that he's in the background. Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, so they're... There are a lot of you know, hurt feelings going on when, <laughs> when they're here. In the vinyl days, when the, the band's coming in to the studio and they realize that, that their music is too long to make it as loud as other music, then they have to cut out the parts to make it short. There are not, no, ways, no other ways to do it. Because if the music's louder, it takes up more space on the record yeah. and you can't put as much music on the record. Yeah, exactly. So that determination is made at the mastering point when they've... They've already recorded and mixed and tweaked everything, and yep. this is the way they want their record to sound. And then you come along and say, "Sorry, we have to lose ten minutes." Or do you want to make your album rec uh, quieter than other commercial records, or not? Then they have to decide which part to take out. Then now it's, it gets very interesting. You're gonna take my guitar intro eight bar. That's not gonna <laughs> happen. And then my chorus, no. So like there are a lot of heart feelings going on in the mastering. So it's not new, but. Thank God, because I'm usually uh, by myself working, so I don't get those <laughs> you, you don't have people looking over your shoulder. and Right. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the, the media itself, because these days a lot of media is being consumed. CD, iTunes, high-res, vinyl. So I have to reconsider my EQ or my whole process for other media, like vinyl cutting master, or high-res music, I don't need to bring up the intro because I know that the high-res is going to be heard in a quiet environment. So I had to take my pleasure to bring it down as original. So those are stuff that I have to make a decision in the mastering. Does it mean that you, you've got a new album today, you get the digital files. Do you make one version of the album if there's a vinyl release, one for CD release, one for high resolution, and one for iTunes? You're actually making four different versions of your mastering. I do. Wow. I don't know. I can't say any other mastering engineer's work, but at least on my work, yeah. There are a couple uh, tools that I can listen uh, real time, how it would sound like in uh, mess for iTunes or... Uh, lower quality iTunes when I'm doing it, when I do the equalizer or compressor. 
So in that way, I can hear what they're going to hear, what the consumer is going to hear. So it's, it's great. So you, you were just talking about some of the tools you use. Earlier, you said you adjust volume. You were talking about equalizer, which is to adjust frequencies, and compressor, which is to compress the volume so it can be louder. What other tools do you apply to the music? I think, I think that's about it. Also, there's another uh, the form of limiter, a compressor that's called brick wall limiter, which is uh, make, just, just to make music loud. That is the digital plugin. There's only plugin, only digital stuff that I'm using. Uh, but um, that's the only digital plugin you what use. What do you mean? Do you work with tape? Uh, all, all, all the process that I'm doing is done on the analog side. Really? Wow. So I don't use any uh, digital tools at all until it's converted to uh, digital at the very end, and do one more process for to make it loud, which is bricolimiter. Okay, hold on. I'm I'm not sure I understand. You get a digital file, right? And then you work on it with analog tools. Yep. And then you reconvert it from analog to digital. Right. That's interesting. Why do you do that rather than doing everything digitally? Because I still haven't got any digital plugins that sound better than uh, my analog tools. And if you look at the um, very well-known mastering studios, and you will see uh, lines of analog equalizer and compressor that are being used. So as far as I know, all the mastering engineers that I respect are using uh, analog compressor and analog equalizer as their, their main tool. So I'm, I'm trying to think, um, what little I know about this. Um, I know that if you have a digital file, you get artifacts when you're using compression, when you're using equalization. But if you're doing it with an analog, you don't get any of those artifacts. Is that correct? There are different artifacts. All the artifacts will not be heard at the, at the same thing. Some of the artifacts will be heard as a distortion, which makes the music sounds bad. Some of the, the artifacts will be heard as a musical or euphonic effect, like transformers people love. It's adding odd harmonics, or even, I think it's odd harmonics, right? Not even harmonics. Uh, dif different harmonics, which is a distortion, but it's a very euphonic distortion, which makes sounds greater, very musical. So there are those artifacts on one side, on, usually on the digital side, those artifacts will be heard more like sterile or like very digital. Those artifacts will be regarded as a, something bad or something not musical. Uh, you know, people always talk about the analog sound being warmer, which is basically that slight distortion you get from a record or from a tape. Do, do you feel that that adds something when you're working in analog or are your tools good enough that it doesn't really alter the sound that much? Yeah, my goal is to gather the tools that doesn't change the sound or it changes the sound in a good way. But usually I don't get, I don't get to use the tools that change the sound at all. So my goal on my, on my work is to use the tools that retains all the details and all the harmonics all the little, you know, uh, minor informations that the artist or engineer wants to put so, I, so that I don't lose that. So that's my goal. Yeah. We'll have a link in the show notes to Sonny's company, Jacob's Well Mastering. And on the homepage, there are a number of pictures of his workroom. And I saw that uh, this is fascinating. And I, I had made notes to ask you if you could describe a, this to us. Yeah, so the big difference between uh, my room to any other conventional mastering or mixing studio is there's the nothing in between me and the speaker. And if you put, as you know, if you put something in, in front of you, that changes the sound, reflections and everything. So yeah. my goal is to hear the music 
as does the speaker generate to my ear. Uh, li listeners, you might want to go to the website and look at the pictures on the homepage as Sunny describes this, um, because it's, it's not only very interesting from a gear point of view, but it's very attractive architecturally the way this room is laid out. Yeah, it's one of the loveliest studios I've ever seen. Thank you. So, so you've got these two big speakers in the wall. Yep. Why are they in the wall instead of on stands or something? Does that make a difference? Yeah, there are, there are differences. There are pros and cons between each, you know, between those two methods. But uh, mine is kind of a, to make the inf infinite baffle speaker. It, it was designed to as a freestanding speaker by ATC, but um, uh, acoustician that worked for me and me decide to make it more like an infinite baffle speaker. So, and also this is the setup that I used when I was working at the mastering lab. That was the, the first company that I worked at. So uh, uh, on the pictures, uh, we can see that you've got a chair. Uh, one of the pictures shows the chair dead center facing the speakers. Do you just sit there and listen to the whole recording first to immerse yourself in it? Yeah. So at least like uh, I have jumped into a few different tracks to see how the album would sound like. Sometimes there are a couple different engineers which will you know make the different tracks sound totally different or sometimes hopefully uh one engineer knows what to do so they mixed he mixed the uh, like 10 tracks in all so everything would sound very similar then it's very easy work for me if i get the one track sound right then the, all the others sound very similar to this pretty similar eq so i have to listen to those things and also when i listen through uh, i get to know what is the loudest track? What is the like uh, fast track? What is the slow track? What's, which track to start with? I, I get all these different feelings. Also, uh, I have to make myself friendly to the sound that's coming out of the speakers because all these different mixing engineers, producers, or the recording gears, microphones gives me a totally different sounding. If I don't understand what it is, then I can't get into the music. So um, that's the, the process that I first take to listen through. But I don't listen to whole song, but I just you know skip to a different songs just to get the idea of the whole album because my work is to work on the album, not just one song. Right. So look again, looking at this picture of your your workroom, there are two big, I don't know, big rectangles above the speakers under the ceiling. What are they for? That's a bass trap. It's a what? They're called bass traps. Bass traps. So to prevent too much bass resonance. Yeah. And then there are two wooden things in front of the bass traps that yeah. come down and look like sculptures. What are they for? That's uh, um, diffusers. Um, RPG, I don't know whether you know the, the firm called RPG. Uh, it's a, one of the famous uh, companies that makes the, a lot of uh, acoustical treatments. But it's a, it's a thing that scatters the sound in a random way so that the first reflections doesn't go into your ear like directly which will generate a con filtering issue. And it's up below the ceiling because it's getting more of the high frequencies then, is that it? Well, the, the, uh, I've tried, when I built my studio, I tried multiple ways to put the observing stuff, sound observing material, and also like the, those scattered uh, sounding uh, treatment in a multiple different ways. And I, I like this uh, configuration. Uh, on the first reflection side of the sidewall, I put the more of the observing materials Yet I put the those uh, scattering um, product on the ceiling. There's, so there are three first reflection point, right? Bottom, side wall, and the ceiling. And yeah, the bottom of it is a very thick carpet, so it absorbs the stuff as well. 
And as Doug said before the show, there's a picture of a, of a pond on the wall between the speakers. Yeah, it's, it's great, isn't it? It's a, it's a dream of the, all these engineers because engineers tend to work in the very dark room, which doesn't have any you know, uh, real light and everything. Yeah, that's how sound engineers get those great studio tans. Yeah, I, I'm joking when I say it's a picture. It's actually a pond. Um, and there's another photo on your website that shows um, the lake on which your studio is built. And I guess it's good, as you say, you've got natural light in there. You know when it's morning, you know when it's evening and, and all that. And it must be attractive to be able to look out like that. Right. Yeah. The, the downside of it is in the winter. If I start to get the, a lot of snow, then... Um, I tend to worry, like, can I go outside? Or, and I'm from California to New Hampshire, so which is too, totally new to me. And we're getting like three foot of snow like, like this. You've got these big speakers on your wall, and, and they're, I'm assuming they're extremely transparent speakers. I, I remember an anecdote about when the Rolling Stones finished mixing Exile on Main Street that they went out to listen to it in a car radio, because that's how people listened. Do you do that? Do you listen on Apple earbuds and Bluetooth speakers? When I first built the studio, I listened to music on a very different environment, various different environments, to make sure that the, the music that I'm making here are to be transferred well to other systems. Once, once I make sure that it's happening, I don't listen to it anymore on a you know, different right. environment. But I tend to go to my car and listen to it a couple of times. The, the car, the, 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 the engineering room of last resort. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, I don't know how many times I've used my car stereo as a set of B speakers, you know? Uh, yeah, or a mixing engineer as well. Because as a mixing engineer, it's very hard to put the like, big speakers on their room because it takes you know, big space. So they don't have much tools to check the, the low end. So you go to the car and you have big speakers so you, you can have a chance to check the, the base area, whether the kick is too much or is there any unneeded resonance of the kick is still be heard on the mix. So uh, it's a good tool. I wanted to ask you, you know, we, we see albums that are released and they're remastered albums. Are albums remastered because the original mastering is bad or because we have better technology today? Or just to give a different mastering, I would say mastering artist, a chance to make their version of the album? Um, there, I think there are a couple reasons to have remastered album. The first of all is for the recording label to get more revenue. Yeah, we've had people suggest that to us in the past. Right. To convince fans to buy yet another copy of an album. Yeah, that's the, I think it's a, the strongest factor that drives the all, whole this remastering thing. The second thing is, as I said before, a listening environment has been changed pretty bad, in my opinion. So people don't listen to music in a you know, quiet living room or the area that you can listen to with a you know, focus on music. Rather, uh, it became as a, like a background music. So in order to be heard better, uh, mastering has to be done differently so that people can hear those little different uh, quiet uh, elements of the mix or the intro, outro on a louder environment. So there are needs for that too. So I think those two are the, the main reason of it. And I want to add just one more thing on the remastering thing for the vinyl, because there are there are one more issue on the vinyl, at least, for remastering, which is very promising to me, which is, um, as I said, there are you know, l l loudness war, level war from 50s till now. So we had to fight against this thing, uh, put the music as loud as possible, but with the good quality. 
for the vinyl, there are no more loudness war on the remastering because people looks people look for the quality from the vinyl record rather level. So one one good example is the um, doors and also um, the Rolling Stones that I cut. We cut that on 45 RPM with four different sizes from the uh, one single album, 33. So 12-inch 45s. Yeah. yeah. So in that means 45 sounds much better, high, res, uh, high frequency, yep. uh, characteristic, and low as well. And also, I don't need to put the loud level. So I can't put those original intention, left and right, vinyl, uh, left and right, stereo, one bass, bass goes to left and drum goes to right. That's original intention, right? And the problem of that is the real estate issue. But now, because we don't push the level and it cuts into four different sides, I can put the original intention to the vinyl. So it's really great to have those, uh, the vinyl revived with the less level pushed. So there's definitely a good quality of vinyl records remastered. I want to you know, emphasize that. So, so what, what you're saying is that a, a vinyl mastering today can actually sound better than the original vinyl mastering because you have this space and you have the freedom, um, as you say, to, to put it on two records 45 instead of just a single 33. Right. So, yeah. So the basic, basic thing is music became the, the just background thing rather yeah. something that you focus on to. So in that way, it's very interesting to see the, this uh, vinyl revival because the vinyl media itself focuses you to listen in a very particular way. The weakness of the vinyl, which is not mobile, became the strength of it. So people, when people listen to the vinyl, they just tell me that, like, I don't know why, but I'm listening more of the, more of the things that I haven't heard on that music because while I'm listening to the vinyl. Because, yeah, you're listening to the quiet environments and you care for the, the vinyl because it's expensive. The, the style is expensive. So you just, have, you just have to sit down for 25 minutes to listen to. So obviously you're getting more from the music. Yeah, so, so it's not that they're hearing things they didn't hear. It's that they're paying attention to things that were always there that they just didn't notice before. Right. So particular media forces the, the, the way of listening, particular way of listening, which is great for the vinyl. And my worry is on the high-res, this DAP digital um, audio player, the mobile digital play player, yeah. is my worry. Because I was hoping that the, the high-res is something to be heard in a quiet environment and a better setting of the speaker. Yet now people using those little things, I have it here too, but little things to put their earbuds and walking, jogging, and they thought they were listening to high-res, but now, you know, I don't think so. That's a, oh, that's right. I, ha I have one of those Fio X7 players, um, and that does maybe up to 192.24. And I hadn't thought of that, that if, if your mastering is high res because of the dynamic range and you allow more quiet passages, you go out with something like that, you're going to pump up the volume because of the noise around you and right. you're defeating the purpose. Yeah, and then you have to turn it down when the music gets loud. But, but I do agree that the, the sort of attention is what you need to give good music. But then again, a lot of people listen to music that doesn't benefit from attention. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah, Tom, I think there, there will be some kind of turning point down the road because, you know, uh, when you're young, you're going to McDonald's to have a burger. But 
when you go to like you know, um, Five Guys and or the you know, more expensive you know, burger and realize that oh this is a real burger, <laughs> then you, you're not going back. So uh, <laughs> I hope that the 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 young people would enjoy the music better when they hear the like high res or vinyl in a, you know, the real listening environment rather jogging or you know I, I I don't have any problem with that. But if you you know care for the music, then you have to sit down and listen to it. Sonny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. This is really interesting. Well, thanks for having me. I was I was jumping like here and there, so I, I hope that it's not too bad to edit out all the things. No, we we flip it down to mono anyway. It's a podcast. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> and before we wrap things up, we'd like to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we're going to be listening to next. Kirk, what have you got? My next track this week is a very old blues album. Not very old, actually. It's recorded in 1960. It's by Reverend Gary Davis. The album cover lists his name as Blind Gary Davis. The album is called Harlem Street Singer. Now, Gary Davis was, I believe he was born in North Carolina, and he got discovered at the Newport Folk Festival, and he became a staple of the burgeoning blues folk um, movement that was going on at the time. As the name on this album suggests, he was born blind. He became a, a preacher at age 36, I believe. And in 1960, he went to Rudy Van Gelder's studio in New Jersey. He spent three hours and laid down 12 songs. And some of these songs are classics. Now, if you are a fan of the blues, you know this album and you have it. If you're not a fan of the blues, but you're, let's say, a fan of The Grateful Dead, you know songs like Samson and Delilah or Death Don't Have No Mercy. If you're a Hot Tuna fan, then you know I Belong to the Band, Pure Religion, Let Us Get Together, 12 Gates to the City, I Am the Light of This World. Yorma Kalkinen of Hot Tuna was a student of Gary Davis and one of the biggest proponents of his music, and he played more than a dozen Gary Davis songs. So this is a great musician playing 12 excellent songs in three hours. It's, you know, you can imagine the, what, what it was like in the studio when he was doing that. One of the interesting things that I found out recently, now if you play guitar and you've ever done finger picking, you know that, you know, you use your thumb and a few fingers. He would only play with his thumb and his forefinger. Now listen to the album and keep that in mind when he plays these really fast runs. Just thumb and one finger. It's actually quite impressive. So this is Harlem Street Singer by Reverend Gary Davis or Blind Gary Davis. And what's your next track this week, Doug? Well, Sonny's discography includes some recent Frank Zappa album reissues, but none that I have yet. But I'm going to listen to some Frank anyway, specifically Frank Zappa and the Mothers, Roxy and Elsewhere. It's ostensibly a live recording, recorded mostly at the Roxy Theater in Hollywood, but with lots of editing and overdubs. This 1974 album features my favorite Mothers lineup, including George Duke, Napoleon Murphy Brock, Bruce and Tom Fowler, Ruth Underwood, Chester Thompson, and Ralph Humphrey, and of course, Frank. It features some previously unrecorded songs, rearrangements of older Mothers songs, and pretty much gives you the full Mothers live experience, including audience participation, onstage nonsense, and lots of funny, fast little notes. You might find this album to be more accessible, that is, more listenable if you're not exactly a Zappa fan, but stand back because it does contain the amazing musicianship that this particular core band was known for. And you know, I think I've listened to this Zappa album more than any other. It sounds great in the dark, too. I'm not kidding. Frank Zappa and the Mothers, Roxy and Elsewhere is my next track. Wakanan This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. 
If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.